I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. All right, folks. Um, this week, it's not going to be a downer, but it is going to be serious. <laughs> There's no way around this. Um, one of the reoccurring themes on our show, I think, in the past six months or so is, well, probably, I guess, a year, <laughs> more like a year, I guess, uh, is that we've been kind of checking in every now and again on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC. Um, we'll probably use that acronym about a thousand times in this show. So just to be upfront, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I get it wrong about 90% of the time. <laughs> uh, don't, don't do what I do. Anyways, um, we've been following along with what's going on there, and there's some recent developments in that story we want to talk about. Um, but there's also some other environmentally related news uh, coming down from SCOTUS that I think is important. So we're going to kind of talk about those two things together, uh, because uh, if you think about it and you gonna if you and if you can do this good Marxist analysis like we do, you can kind of see how these two things are actually connected in a really integral way and uh, a real doomer kind of way, too. So hold on to your butts, as we say on the show um, and get ready for what should be, I think, illuminating content. In the last few weeks, there have been a number of important decisions handed down by the Supreme Court of the United States. You know them. <laughs> you've, you've been here right along with us with for most of them, I'm sure. There's a lot going on with uh, this big, ugly, rogue court that we got going on. And um, I don't know, a lot happening there for sure. Um, other people are covering that content. Uh, tune in to Know Your Enemy if you want to hear more about um, all of the recent SCOTUS decisions. They've been doing a lot of good stuff with that. Anyways, one SCOTUS decision that I think is important but it's kind of just gone un under the radar um, is in a case called West Virginia versus the EPA. So in this case, the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 to three that the EPA, or the Environmental Protection Agency, again, if you don't know all the acronyms, it's all right. Um, <laughs> the Supreme Court said that the uh, EPA... Uh, you know, doesn't have the same power to regulate the emissions of power plants. Um, it's, it's more sort of limited than, than previously exercised. And uh, that's kind of an interesting thing to happen uh, in light of awful climate change. <laughs> that's not what you want to hear people say at this point, I think, in our, in our horrible hellscape. Um, so we're going to talk about the specifics of that decision in a minute. But we're also going to talk about the larger narrative around the international environmental guidance from the UN. Um, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change I've been talking about. So recently there was a section of that report, uh, section six of that report, 
uh, that was leaked that is pretty interesting. So basically the story here is there's a section of this report that was leaked and it didn't make it into the final version. And it's really important. The, the section was about sort of like uh, guidance for policymakers about the uh, impossibility of unlimited growth <laughs> in, <laughs> in the world and how that's just, you know, not feasible. Anyways, that got cut. That got cut for some interesting reasons that I think Dean will talk about in a minute. But I think these two things together kind of demonstrate or like reveal that there's sort of a big capitalist feedback loop about climate change that simply serves to reinforce the assumptions of capitalism at this point, right? Um, the government is saying the EPA can't do, you know, these actually pretty modest uh, regulations to power plant emissions. Um, and then, you know, we're states or were the the federal government to look for guidance on how to actually tackle climate change they would look to you know the ipcc report which is also going to tell them things about you know about capitalism and how it's you know not a fundamental problem or something so these all these things are kind of working together and they create this awful loop that really um that creates a difficulty within our government to like actually address climate change in a real way um, that doesn't just kind of like reinforce the assumptions of capitalism. So I think in light of this, we're going to think through some of the ways that the recent Supreme Court decision and the news about the leaked IPCC report reveal some uh, conspiratorial thinking or some very diluted thinking that will inevitably, you know, get us all killed in the end and make the planet unlivable. So um, on that note, Dean, let's talk about the EPA. Did you hear about the story up in the the great white north of Canada? Yeah, it did make its way up to these airwaves up here. Um not, I mean, in a pretty muted way, you know, the, as you said, there's been a lot going on <laughs> in SCOTUS and more generally in the United States, lots of bad stuff. And those things tend to catch on, I guess, more in Canada, the decisions around abortion, the shooting, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I guess I haven't heard a lot of people in Canada talking about the EPA in particular, but it's interesting too, because I mean, Canada... Canada is a weird country in that it's always kind of proximal to the U.S., right? Like uh, it's comparing itself with the United States all the time. And I think that also means a lot of people, I guess, sort of expect the worst out of the U.S. and then also take that opportunity to pat themselves in the back in Canada. So when it comes to things like when, if, if you did hear someone talk about the EPA decision, uh, my assumption is I've never heard anyone talk about this, so take it with a grain of salt, I guess. <laughs> this is my hypothetical Canadian who's talking to me about the EPA. Uh, my assumption is that, you know, most Canadians, the average Canadian that I sort of chat with would say something like, have you heard about this very, very awful thing? And as you got talking about it, they would usually end kind of saying that they're, you know, Canada has its problems, but we're grateful to live in a country that like takes this stuff seriously, you know, inevitably kind of. I guess, uh, blanketing over all, all the ways in which Canada doesn't. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a standard Canadian trope. Um, but uh, all that to say, yes, it's made its way here, but uh, it has not electrified the discourse. We'll put it that way in Canada. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in the United States, it was, you know, a news item for a minute and then it kind of fell to the wayside. And uh, I'm sure it'll come back up again because there are some pretty vast implications that this ruling could have for other governmental organizations as well. But, you know, whatever. Um, it'll come up again and you'll hear about it. But this podcast, hopefully, will tell you about it first. Um, also, I was going to say, too, that, like, well, why should Canada care about the EPA? But when it comes to climate change, they're going to have to care sooner or later. <laughs> but yeah. uh, Also, yikes. I mean, this is kind of an aside, but uh, it matters, too, because... <laughs> As you may know, the environment does not know that there are borders between the United States and Canada. 
And it is actually a huge problem for reasons that I guess we'll get into. But uh, it's I've always lived around the Great Lakes, right? Like I grew up in Michigan. I live in Ontario. And the Great Lakes have often been a huge sticking point between the U.S. and Canada, especially when it comes to environmental stuff. You know, what one country does uh, affects the other one pretty directly. And that's true of all kinds of other environmental issues across the, the border in particular. So even though climate change, of course, is a kind of meta issue, uh, these kinds of things affect Canada actually very directly in some other weird ways. Um, so I'm sure there's like some Canada policy nerds who are worried about it, but I don't know them. They should be worried about it. Um, good for those nerds. Like I said, if you didn't know about it or you're not super familiar with what's going on, I'll just tell you right now. Um, listen to me, a trusted not expert on a podcast. So the Supreme Court decision specifically focuses on a section of the Clean Air Act, uh, which is a piece of legislation that was passed a long time ago in the 1970s, um, super long time ago before I was born. How great. Um, however, during the Obama administration, the EPA used the Clean Air Act as a basis for what was called the Clean Power Plan. These great, <laughs> these great, uh, great catchy <laughs> titles from the Obama administration. Um, anyways, the Clean Power Plan uh, sets sort of like these national standards for carbon emissions for power plants, which is a great forward-thinking piece of policy, which basically um, adds up to like cap-and-trade types of uh, policies, which um, if you know anything about cap-and-trade, they're not, <laughs> they're not the thing that's going to save us from climate change, but they're also, I don't know, not nothing. Uh, however, the, the clean power plan, um, policies, they were like repealed by the Trump administration and they were never put back into place by Joe Biden. Thanks, Joe. Um, so anyways, what's this all got to do with SCOTUS? You might be asking. Um, and that's a good question. That's what I'm asking too. Um, it's, it means that SCOTUS is basically going to go around the EPA and the ruling that they made, uh, last week basically disempowers the EPA from making future rules about power plant emissions. This is like incredibly boring stuff, but this is kind of what <laughs> climate policy is really all about. It's a huge deal because power plants are responsible for a huge chunk of U.S. energy related CO2 emissions. Um, I looked around a few different places and it seems like most people think that it's about 32 percent of the U.S. energy related CO2 emissions is from power plants. So a pretty big chunk. And um, I got to say, I'd love it if that was capped and traded and pushed <laughs> way down. <laughs> um, within that 32 percent, though, coal plants specifically are responsible for 59 percent of those emissions. So it, it's like a pretty big chunk of carbon emissions that we're talking about here that now the EPA can't re like regulate in the same way or as much. So it's bad. It's bleak. And um, uh, coming from West Virginia, you can imagine that there's a lot of coal folks involved. Mm -hmm. So ov overall, this whole thing basically stops the EPA from implementing, you know, like I said, cap and trade policies, which I mean, if you've read any like any literature on climate change, you know, like that's like the sort of like green capitalist answer to everything is cap and trade. Um, basically, what it means is that um, companies can like buy pollution credits from other companies and pollute more. So um, it's it's kind of like a, a pretty weak policy. But I guess what you have to think is that even if those like extremely liberal reforms can't happen, you're definitely not going to get like half of socialism or degrowth or you're not going to get even like the Green New Deal. Right. So if you can't even get the most like sort of uh, weak and mild reforms to happen, there's definitely not going to be anything more radical than that. Disempowering the EPA is a bad idea, I got to say. There's a lot of other things going on there, too. Uh, some people have suggested that this might also disempower other federal organizations like the FDA. So I don't want that to happen either. I think it's bad. Uh, in a lot of ways, this is like, you know, um, it, it's a rogue Supreme Court gone even roguer. <laughs> it's just like mm -hmm. trying to disempower the federal government basically to do anything. 
um, which I'm not a fan of the federal government. I, I think that it's bad in a lot of ways. But um, the things I do like about it, like governmental agencies that regulate things I eat or how much coal plants can <laughs> emit carbon, I think those things are good. So there you go. So there's a lot to consider with all of this. Clearly, the Supreme Court is kind of off the rails. And when I say kind of, I mean a lot. But a, a lot of people have like, you know, gotten caught up in, in the particular way that the Supreme Court sucks. And I think that's fine. And the Supreme Court isn't great, I got to say to put it mildly. Um, but I think a lot of people have missed also like the international scope of this decision, like like we we're talking about a minute ago, whether people in Canada care or not about the EPA, this will be a problem for them as well. It will be as well as it will be a huge problem for people in the global south as well, um, because, you know, uh, climate change hurts uh, the global south more than people in the north. Just to put it very bluntly, um, it will always hurt the, the poorest amongst us. And that's bad. So this huge thing with the EPA going on, I think, is extremely bad and dreary and kind of notes a certain <laughs> nihilism, I think, amongst the uh, the ruling class in the U.S., but it's all pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo that is all very interesting or frustrating or whatever it might be, right? Like, so if the EPA doesn't get to choose or regulate uh, who emits what and how much, then who does? And I guess, I don't know. The state governments. Well, <laughs> what, what what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of legal mumbo jumbo around that. I'm once again not an expert, but the way this works is basically like, so, um, or at least as I understand it, is that like all of these federal governmental organizations they are empowered by Congress. So if the governmental organizations themselves are not, um you know, able to have the agency to kind of just like act in and of themselves like the EPA has done in the past. It means that they have to come as mandates from Congress and they, you know, kind of get caught up in the Supreme Court in all kinds of other ways, too. So it's just like it's disempowering the agencies in favor of empowering Congress. But, <laughs> you know, y'all have seen Congress. You don't need me to tell you how bad it is. You know, like there's all kinds of political stalemates. There's all kinds of problems there, too. So it's like. Um, it's disempowering one um, one organization and and kind of putting more power in the hands of others. But um, the problem is that like the you know like the EPA knows how to make environmental um, policies, whereas Congress is uh, beholden to the uh, class their class interests and to their corporate donors. So not much hope on that front. Yeah. Well, congratulations to Joe Manchin, specifically a big coal guy. In Congress. Um, so, uh, you know, the reason I ask that, I think, is the question always becomes who regulates and how and why. And as you just said, Matt, Congress in particular is beholden to these class interests. And I think that is why I've also found the conversation around the IPCC report more most recently really illuminating. I don't know if we want to move to that right away or if you want to sort of pause on the EPA or kind of throw it all in a big soup at the end. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I believe in making your podcast as much like a soup as possible. So okay. let's just kind of push it all together. All right. A couple cooks in this kitchen. So um, the IPCC report uh, connects with this in some really interesting ways because so the United Nations, you know, they have all kinds of commissions, all kinds of reports that they put out. And the efficacy of these reports is, I think, a subject of constant debate, right? Like, everybody's supposed to kind of care about what the United Nations has to say, and people spend all kinds of time and resources, you know, governments, nations spend lots of time and resources trying to make documents, make decisions, all this kind of stuff at that level that are supposed to be important. <laughs> They're supposed to be things people listen to and so on. Uh, 
that doesn't always happen. And the United Nations is definitely not always good either. Uh, but, you know, nevertheless, it's a very interesting kind of uh, place where nations do talk to each other in this kind of bizarre uh, organization. So one of those big reports is this uh, report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it's been the report has been kind of being released over time. It's very big there. It's like a multi-year research project and so on. And the idea here is that it's a report produced by the scientific community, not the political political community, with the interest of informing, you know, political decisions at the UN and, and elsewhere. So when we talk about something like the EPA empowering Congress, it's like, let's say you're a lawmaker or a policy nerd or something like that, and you wanted to think about climate change. I guess the, you know, the hope of the UN is like you would care what the UN has to say about it, since the US is a, a member nation, one with quite a lot of power, right? So these things are supposed to be in dialogue again. They're often not. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, let's say, you know, you went to the UN for guidance. What would you find? So the IPCC has been releasing this report. And uh, back in um, 2021, they released a, uh, a scientific report that had to do with um, policy. It was called the Summary for Policymakers or the SPM. And the full report uh, that's been released so far, what we have from the IPCC, is actually kind of intense. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen the headlines. Like Matt said, we've talked about it on the show a handful of times in the past. It paints a pretty bleak picture of our present and not to mention our, our future. And so the policy piece, I guess, is uh, an important kind of question. You know, what are we supposed to do about this bleak future? And the summary for policymakers that was released is actually pretty tepid or, or kind of cowardly. And there was some question as to why. And the uh, actual report written by the scientists um, was leaked. And it turned out that it had been edited really heavily, super redacted by a number of governments in the process of getting it out um, as part of the official report. So our uh, favorite socialist publication, The Monthly Review, they've been writing all kinds of stuff about the IPCC. Uh, you can do a big search on their website, find a lot of great content. But there was a good editorial in the issue last month in June that really lays out kind of exactly what was changed. And we can talk about some of the specifics in a minute. But the short of it is that, uh, surprise, <laughs> the changes are made in a way that is kind of de-radicalizing and also explicitly in the interest of the wealthy class. So just to give you a little bit of a, an intro paragraph here, um, they say uh, the final report was published following alterations by the governments of the SPM in April 2022. Yet the final governmental drafted SPM, the only part of the climate change that is read uh, widely and affects policy, negated almost all of what scientists themselves had previously agreed on with respect to mitigation of climate change in their original draft of the SPM, creating a sharp divergence between this and the rest of the 2,900-page report. Right, so <laughs> what the monthly review is saying is like, look, nobody reads 2,900 pages of anything. What they're going to read is the implications for policy, and guess what? Uh, it got hijacked at the end, and here's how. So bad news coming out of the IPCC. That's the short of it. That is the short of it. It is bad news. Um, in case you need a quick refresher, I think at this point, now that you have the headlines, I can tell you this. The part of the IPCC report that we're talking about right now, it came out in 2021. This is section six. And uh, we did an episode about it. You can kind of go through and search search it all out if you want to. 
But the interesting thing about this report scientifically was that there were like five uh, scenarios they lay out in this report that tell you like um, what would happen with what levels of climate mitigation. So like, um, you know, what would happen if we, you know, were able to cut uh, emissions drastically? What would happen if we were only able to cut them you know, a little bit <laughs> in, in the worst situation. But in the best the best case scenario here, I think is actually pretty alarming in and of itself. Um, you know, like in the past, uh, people have often thought, well, you know, like climate change is happening, but we're not really sure at what level. Um, we're not really, whatever. There's like questions, I guess. But I think that this report is really important because it lays out some really uh, stark numbers demonstrating the ways that like, this is actually happening and we will see the results in our lifetimes. So um, in the, the best case scenario that the IPCC report lays out, like this is like the baseline, like if everyone does everything correctly, um, if all of the uh, if all of these great UN nations harmoniously agree to do something, then that means that the world will um, will at least heat up. The planet will heat up 1.5 degrees centigrade. Um, that will be like a, a global temperature like the average global temperature will increase by 1.5 degrees centigrade um after 2040 and then it won't get below that unless uh it won't get below that temperature again to the to the very end of the century so like 2100 right so that means that like no matter even if we do everything right even if everything goes exactly to plan <laughs> the world will still on average get 1.5 degrees centigrade hotter um which can which will have massive effects right but the important thing here is that, like, if you do everything correctly, if everyone kind of works together going forward, those effects are not going to be permanent. The damage can be sort of like slowly undone, right? Um, but then there are all these other kind of like scenarios with less climate mitigation where the damage becomes completely <laughs> off the charts. Um, for example, like the fifth scenario is the worst one which means like, you know, very little to no climate mitigation and the the global average temperature goes up 4.4 degrees centigrade. And that means like, I don't know, people can't Fast live on Earth dead. anymore. Yeah, yeah we're, all, we're all in big trouble. Sorry to take that huge diversion, but I guess I want to let, make sure people know like, yeah. what the stakes are in all of this. So, but, but Dean, like what you're saying here is really important because like when it comes to the policymakers, the part, the part that people are going to read, um, you know, the at, at first there were scientists that were writing like, the unlimited growth of capitalism is not <laughs> is not sustainable. You can't do that. And then, like, you know, those things kind of get taken out in the name of uh, rationality and uh, sort of political, a lack of political will to maybe do those things or something. But uh, it's pretty bonkers, to say the least. Yeah. So I think what's really valuable about this editorial, it's not long. So I encourage people to find it and read it. You can read it for free at the Monthly Review website. Um, the... Uh, what's really nice about it is it lays out some of the really specific things that were changed. So it's not just the kind of, I don't know, did you know that it got messed up, but it's like, here's specifically how. So <laughs> I'm going to read uh, one passage and then we'll talk about like a few big edits that are maybe relevant among many others. So uh, they say this in the article, the editors as early as October, 2021, the BBC. Uh, so not the monthly review, <laughs> not a socialist magazine, but the, the BBC <laughs> Uh, relying on documents that it obtained from the 2021 UN Climate Change Conference then taking place, described how various governments were going to war on the scientific consensus. Saudi Arabia, Argentina, Australia, India, Japan, and Norway, together with OPEC, were demanding the removal of parts of the SPM that had insisted on rapid reductions in fossil fuel energy. 
Australia lobbied against statements in the SPM that indicated that coal-fired plants need to be eliminated while protesting references to fossil fuel lobbyists in the reports. At the same time, most of these countries were seeking to reverse the science in the SPM, pointing to the non-viability of carbon capture and sequestration. Saudi Arabia objected to phrases in the report pointing to the need for accelerated mitigation of climate change. Brazil and Argentina insisted on censoring the scientific report on the subject of decreasing meat-based diets. Switzerland sought to remove sentences in the scientific report pointing to the needs of developing countries to receive financing from rich countries in order to meet the targets of emissions reductions. Uh, India, the Czech Republic, Poland, and Slovakia attacked the consensus for its negative assessment of the role of nuclear power combating climate change and achieving sustainable development goals. All these countries were successful in cutting out entirely or watering down what they regarded as the objectionable elements in the published version of the SPM. So we'll talk about some more specifics in a minute. But the, the pattern here, the consistent pattern, right, is each country basically was like, well, how's this going to affect my economy specifically? Yep. And then went through and said, can we erase that part, right? <laughs> so what you're getting here is really, uh, um, you know, on the one hand, there is a national interest, a national economic interest at play. Um, but you're also getting the voice of of capital, really, right? Uh, it's the voice of where where the wealth is getting generated in these nations. And uh, that is what is ultimately centering or watering down the scientific report. So in the report for policymakers, uh, you're getting the the input of people who already have made policies around protecting their industry rather than around protecting the environment. You know, there's no indication in this editorial, for example, that at any point a government intervened and said the opposite. At no point did someone say, I think maybe we should even do more than this, right? (laughs) (laughs) At at every stage it was, uh, this sounds like a little bit too much for me specifically. This is such an interesting artifact. Like the leak itself is such an interesting artifact of like uh, the history of technology and science, right? Because um, when it comes to science, people get very (laughs) uncritical, I think, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Like... um, I don't know, log on, well, don't really do this, but you can do it as a thought experiment in your own brain. Log on to reddit.com and go to the atheism subreddit and just like look at the way that people talk about science. That's like the sort of like objective, neutral way to understand the world or something that is completely sort of uh, detached from any ideology. But um, this is such a great example of the ways that it's not. Uh, and I think that, you know, this is not like the exception that proves the rule or something that this is just, I think, how science works in general. Right. Like when it comes to like scientific findings, especially when they you know come to bear on political things like this is really what happens. Um, science um, itself, you know, maybe the, the scientists are are acting in good faith trying to write these things. But like all of these kind of pushbacks you, you get from different governments and, and stuff, you see the ways that like. The discourse like favors sort of the hegemony of capitalist ideas and like, sorry, if it's bad for the economy, then we're not going to do it. Right. There's a really like a good Foucauldian lesson in all of this, I guess, the ways that uh, power dominates discourse, even if it's supposed to be like a very neutral and dispassionate sort of thing. Yeah. You know, it's very funny. Like so Matt and I are always talking about French philosophy on this podcast. And if you went to graduate hey, school... We. And we, we, if you went, we're doing a lot of Duolingo as well. If you went to graduate school in the 90s through like, I don't know, maybe the mid aughts or something like that, um, which is what we both did. 
then uh, you got, I think, fed a pretty steady diet of basically like anti-science hermeneutics, right? Uh, not to say like kind of anti-vaxxing, anti-masking, all that kind of stuff. But there was a really powerful narrative in continental philosophy, especially in France, that was um, basically challenging the neutrality of science as a discourse, right? Kind of bemoaning the idea that society is run by experts or run by um, people who are allegedly following just the value-free path of, of the sciences, right? And there's all kinds of people in all kinds of ways making that case with different vocabularies. Anybody you read writing in France, I guess, from like the, the 70s on and then how that gets mitigated into the U.S. and in Canada, uh, they're all very nervous about science. That's um, right. We learned it in grad school, but everyone else can log on to Twitter and just look at Neil deGrasse Tyson's page and kind of get the same vibe, I think. You'll, you'll suddenly understand that science is not dispassionate. Yeah, <laughs> it has exactly. A, has a, uh, has values. Yeah, but what's so funny about it, so like um, there's this guy, Bruno Latour, who we've also talked about in this podcast, French philosopher. He is very famous for talking about how science is constructed, and he's a very interesting guy problematic in his own way but interesting and uh you know so he's his whole career is basically being like listen you think science is objective truth but i'm here to tell you that it is a product of like social conversations and practices and some of which are like good and bad so a guy who's kind of like destabilizing our faith in science that was kind of his vibe his whole thing and uh <laughs> when the pandemic started he had a very funny interview where he's basically like okay it's not that i was wrong but like probably we don't need that right now. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I feel that way so much reading this article specifically, right? Like everything in my academic training is basically designed to be like, when you hear a scientific report tells you something, you should like think twice about it. Not in the sense that it's wrong, but like think about what interests are at play underneath, right? Uh, but in this case, I'm like, okay, listen, the scientists said this stuff. And then like the, you know, the governments came along and made these big edits and then that was kind of peddled as like the real science behind it. And what's funny is the monthly review editorial is basically being like the the science got, you know, messed up with all this other shit or whatever. And uh, it's so funny because all of a sudden I have this kind of Latour moment where I'm like, well, science is always kind of mixed up with the shit. But like you should listen to the scientists. <laughs> like it's, it's very weird to like suddenly have a different uh, a different reaction or a different impulse. But when it comes to climate change. It is really wild how like the science itself, the scientists are the scientific community is like explicitly in battle with uh, governments to figure out what to do. Well, of course, now we're on their side when they agree with us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, what are the big edits, Dean? What what are the big things that got changed in this uh, in this terrible document? All right. So there are a bunch of them, but I pulled out just four that I thought were relevant to this podcast in particular. Um, so the first is the original draft of the SPM written by scientists. So again, these are scientists suggesting policy making, whatever summaries, uh, the original draft compared the carbon emissions of the wealthiest 10% of the global population to those of the poorest 10%, indicating that the former account for 10 times the per capita emissions of the latter. Uh -oh. the, com the comparison was deleted from the published report. <laughs> Stupid. Stupid. So uh, pretty wild. I love that some person was just like, let's just not say that. Not you just have to. <laughs> it's just like in a, in a big Google Doc and someone just. Uh, yeah. Would you like to accept this change of deleting this entire paragraph? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, number two, um, another person or another edit here. The SPM by scientists had indicated that the top 1% accounted for 50% 
of all aviation-based emissions while this was dropped from the governmental SBM. I think this is huge because um, because people on the right, or even people not on the right, people who are just like leery of sort of environmental transformation or whatever, political transformation around environmental issues, will be like, you know, environmental activists, they want you to stop flying altogether. And mm-hmm. I think that's true. In a lot of, a lot of cases, people do, do say that. But like, if you break it down like this, um, it's not like, you know, your flight from Chicago to Toronto or whatever. It's like uh, it's the people who fly constantly on private jets who are yeah. accounting for 50 percent of all of the emissions. It's not uh, it's not you and coach. Yeah, exactly. And that's just the top 10 per- or the top one percent. Right. So imagine the top 10 percent, for example, I would be very curious to see what that percentage would be. Uh, and then again, like if you added in, I don't know, like whatever the military is doing to just like test yeah. their stupid shit, like <laughs> that percentage is going to go way up. Um, all right. Another significantly, the science based SPM explained that over 40 percent of developing country emissions were due to export production for developed countries. This is no longer included in the final SPM. That is a huge point that I want to return yep. to in a minute. And then uh, the scientific consensus indicated that incremental change was not sufficient to address climate change with its lock-in of high-emissions technologies, and that an ambitious transformation with a systemic approach aimed at a fundamental social transition overcoming vested interests was required. This was discarded in the governmental consensus. So, you know, like I said, there's lots of other little things you can look at. It's all very interesting and, and challenging and troubling. But the the key here is it's it's really transparent, right, that what the governments are doing is they're not only even editing it in the interest of their own national economies, right? Of course, Brazil and Argentina don't want people to eat less meat. That makes sense. Agree with it or disagree with it. <laughs> they're basically looking out for their own economies. Uh, the same with whomever, you know, all these uh, like Australia and coal, so on and so forth. But what's really wild, uh, you know, the perverse cherry on top of this horrible cake uh, <laughs> um, the, it, is that uh, it's not just their own uh, economies that they're protecting. They're literally protecting the global elite, the global wealth. It is in the interest yeah. of capital in the abstract that they're making these edits to the policy document. And I think that is extremely messed up. And something that we should talk about, like the, the inter the, the uh, yeah, the intergovernmental edits on these policies are done in the interest of protecting rich people. And that's it. And I think that is really messed up. Yeah, it is really messed up because it's not even like it's not even nationalist. Right. It's not exactly. even um, it's not even for the sake of their own country. It's for the sake of like, yeah, the the elite, the global elite, <laughs> whoever those people are. Yeah. Um, I mean, we know exactly who they are, but <laughs> but still, um, I mean, global capitalists are, are behind it. It is deeply messed up. But I think it it reflects back on the EPA decision in this whole different light, right? Like, if if the EPA is not empowered to make, you know, regulations as they were previously, which which still were were weak willed, which were which were reformist, which, you know, weren't. Well, the, they're not the transformation we need, I guess what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but even if like the EPA can't do that and like who and, and Congress has to start like um, if, if they want to get anything sort of environmentally done regulation wise, who are they going to look to? It, you know, this document for sure. These are like the, the global leaders in this conversation. And what they're going to get is like <laughs> nothing. Right. They're going to get policies that uh, that support the most wealthy, which I guess is probably what they would do anyways. Um but you can see this kind of like feedback loop emerge where it's like, okay, 
we are we are the leaders of a, a country. We have to make decisions. We have to make policies. We're uh, we're also like the basically the ruling elite. And then also we have to uh, we have to go look for research that people have done. And like we'll go look at this research, and uh, it's telling us exactly what we want to hear. And isn't that great? And then you know uh, by twenty one hundred, <laughs> the global temperature will have risen by four point four percent, and we'll all be like roasted. Mm. So I don't know. It's just like such a frustrating thing to see happen. Um, because it will hurt a lot of people in the end, um, you know, demonstrably so. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing is uh, to get away from that future where it hurts a lot of people in the end, it requires this huge transformation, right? Not even uh, not even restoring the APA, EPA's ability to limit <laughs> power plants, but like <laughs> making the EPA the, you know, the big war communism juggernaut of like environmental regulation that we need, right? <laughs> like uh, that's that's not even on the table. And that's what the policymakers are saying that we do need is a, a real transformation in our global systems. Um, I said I wanted to return to that point about uh, 40% of developing country emissions being due to export production for developed countries. I think that is huge. It's something that came up in the discussions around COP26. Um, We did an episode about that uh, last year. So COP26, also another UN thing, the Conference of Parties, it's called. Um, The 26th time that they all gather in a room to talk about climate change and then fail to do anything about it. Um, At that time, one of the big uh, discursive points uh, in the conversation was, okay, yeah, you know, all these Western countries, like, sure, they emit too much, but you know who emits a ton? China or India. Those are the big ones. Um, And uh, how hypocritical of, you know, um, all these kind of left-wing people to be, like, upset at the United States when, per capita, they don't have nearly as many people as other countries uh, like China and India. Uh, but the the big thing is um, not even left wing economists, but just like average boring economists were all pointing out uh, at that time that uh, e- even that is bizarre because um, <laughs> like China is a gigantic country. India is a gigantic country. And so, of course, they emit more emissions because they're bigger. <laughs> they're bigger countries. Uh, that's a big thing. But also the the industrial kind of um, or the emission pressure on those economies are primarily due to the the function that they have, the role that they have in, in meeting consumer demand for, for bullshit <laughs> in the West, right? Uh, like they, when you look at like the made in China tags on, I don't know, all the like crappy toys that you buy at the dollar store or whatever, um, all that stuff is coming from somewhere else, and it takes a lot of emissions to make that stuff. If all the stuff that were that they, that is consumed by people in developed countries, if that was made in developed countries, uh, the emissions sort of price tag for that would be astronomical. I mean, it would like it's already awful and embarrassing. It would be that much more. I mean, it would be this like, <laughs> I mean, it's disturbing now. It would be more disturbing, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So uh, it's really important to make that point because at the end of the day, like there are geopolitical conversations around this, right? Like Joe Biden even says often in his uh, speeches, he's like Xi Jinping, if he's going to get serious about uh, climate change, like he needs to fix their big emissions problem. But like that's I mean, yes, they do, I guess. But like, (laughs) how are they going to do that when literally their whole economy uh, is based around also trying to uh, to be the world's, you know, supply chain headquarters or whatever? Like 
that is the system we have. And if we have, if we want to change it, we do need that transformational change, not an incremental change, but like a top to bottom global (laughs) supply chain, global value chain change. And like that is not in the agenda. And uh, these governments have basically decided, you know, they don't want to talk about it. Right. And I guess what's so frustrating about some of that, too, I mean, is the arrogance of Western countries. That sucks. I don't like that. (laughs) That's very dumb. But also that, like, so much of the production is completely needless. Like, it's just really frivolous kind of stuff. Like you said, like dollar store toys. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are created in China that are absolutely, I guess, essential, probably. Mm -hmm. I mean, China creates so many things, right? But there's so much stuff that they don't, that they create that is, you know, not not essential to life, <laughs> not essential to anyone's life, right? Just that's basically like plastic garbage that will, uh, you know, <laughs> exacerbate the problem in the end. So it's just, uh, it's frustrating to see, I don't know, so much, um, so much production outsourced, but like needless production, mm-hmm. right? Production for the sake of production. Yeah. And, you know, know above. <laughs> yeah, it. this is, I don't know, maybe like my feeling at my most sort of critical theory Adorno phase or whatever is like, I had this like extremely weird intrusive thought, I guess, the other day. Um, I forget what it was, what movie it was, some Disney Pixar movie or something that I saw. And for some reason, I just had this like, (laughs) like reflex inside where I just thought how much plastic is now going to be introduced into, um, you know, the consumer economy just because this movie came out like you know, yeah. all the toys that are made, all the like glossy posters that get made, every single product that's tied up to like a shitty knockoff version of a toy or a T-shirt for like a six year old that's going to wear it once and like, a you know, whatever parent will throw it in the garbage, like all because of this one movie, like every time a kid's movie comes out, there's, you know, I don't know, like literally hundreds of thousands of lunch boxes made or whatever. And it's like, man. What a what a messed up dumb economy that we have. <laughs> it's a bad idea. A bad <laughs> idea to do this. Dean, I gotta tell you, sometimes intrusive thoughts are, you know, just irrational things that kind of creep <laughs> up in your brain. But that one's real scary. So that's what I'm saying. My thousand years old. <laughs> my most adorno. Um, yeah. So you know, and okay, now maybe we can start putting some of the the Christian bits on here because uh, it's not just tacked on, like. I think, what does it mean to reflect on all this stuff as a Christian? In a minute, we can talk about what Leonardo Boff thinks in particular. Matt and I were kind of looking around for other people talking about this, and guess what? Leonardo Boff, you can always go to him. He'll tell you what to think. But uh, (laughs) I was also thinking um, Pope Francis has anticipated so much of this stuff already, even in Laudato Si'. We've mentioned this on the show in the past, too, but he has this really good line in there about how when it comes to fighting climate change, um developing countries which is a a bad term i guess poorer countries i guess to to name what's really going on here poorer countries have uh, a hard time fighting climate change for a lot of reasons first of all it's hard to develop your economy if you don't industrialize maybe it's not impossible but so far it has proven to be impossible it's the only path that really we seem to have figured out um yet (laughs) uh and uh guess what that is very bad for the environment so they're already held back because if they want to develop their economies further, they're probably going to have to do more emissions to get there. That is complicated. Um, they're also held back because they don't have the capital to even do that. And they also don't have the capital to explore other ways of developing that maybe don't have as many emissions, right? They don't have the the capital freedom to invest in clean innovation and so on. And what they do get is handed down from global north economies and uh, usually not at a good price and so on. 
Uh, and so all that to say, what Pope Francis suggests is there does have to be a massive investment of rich countries into poor countries. Sorry, Sweden. Um, you're just going to have to get over it. Uh, but they also he also says uh, that we really owe and people in the global north, countries in the global north, owe an ecological debt is what he calls it to countries in the global south. And I think that is actually a really fertile kind of way of talking. Like there's a lot there, a lot that's suggestive. And it comes out of that kind of Christian imagination, right? Like we we owe something to these other folks. That's not the kind of thing that you're going to get if you think as a policy analyst. It's not the kind of thing that you get if as you think of like a person who is editing a report at the UN, right? That that's not really the moral formation necessarily that you're coming out of. So I think that's maybe one actual contribution of kind of Christian discourse about ecology that might help us start thinking a little more broadly here, right? Like, what would it mean for us to think about international politics in terms of what we owe uh, our neighbor on the other side of the planet? Um, it's maybe one way of kind of reorienting our mind, uh, uh, you know, even even beyond kind of political economy, but in a more sort of uh, spiritual direction that is like actually useful for for politics. Yeah, yeah, totally. Let's talk a little bit about what Leonard Boff has to say about the IPCC report. This is in uh, a blog post that he wrote. It's uh, originally in Portuguese. So um, the translation is probably not quite right, but we'll work with it. Um, it was uh, released about the same time last year that this um, the sixth uh, IPCC report was released. And the title is Reality Can Be Worse Than We Think. <laughs> Thanks, Leonard Boff. <laughs> I didn't need that part, but thanks. Um, okay, so he starts off kind of just like framing the problem, I think, in a, in a way that is, uh, I don't know if it's helpful. It's scary, so let's just talk about it. Uh, Leonard Boff says, There is talk of a planetary emergency and even an ecological Armageddon that would, that would devastate much of life as we know it. It would be a consequence of the new geological era of the Anthropocene, perhaps of the Necrocene itself. Who cares about this worrying and ominous scenario? Almost nobody. This is this is the part where I think the the grammar breaks down. But he says unconsciousness has lived like a Noah's time, which is trying to, he's trying to say that like it our time now is just like the time before the flood, right? Uh, people are unconscious to the uh, the dangers looming. No one knows when or how the flood will come. Everyone is in a, a business as usual sort of mode, yearning for a return to the old normality, exactly the one that is producing the global tragedy of the coronavirus. Um, so there's some of that going on too. If you can remember back to last year, people were still very concerned about that. People are still very concerned about the coronavirus, <laughs> but in uh, some some different ways. Anyways, even more serious is the realization that there's no collective will either in the heads of state or in the world society to warn of the serious consequences for our lives, for the life of nature, and for the destiny of our civilization. So this framing, I think, is really important um, because it's just I don't know starkly the truth, I guess. Um, like, literally, if we don't change the way our society functions and produces and supports people, the planet can't, it's just not habitable. <laughs> In 100 years, you can't live here is kind of what it comes down to. I mean, there or, or you know, whatever. You can live here, but there will be irreversible damage done. Um, and uh, our life will have to change in different ways. So lots of instability in the future. People need to care about this, but surprise, nobody does. Yeah. I uh, mean... <laughs> that's one thing that I like the most about Boff, to be honest, is he is one of those rare theologians who's willing to say that outright, that like <laughs> the people in power do not care about you. And we should say that very loudly. Uh, a lot of theologians don't seem to have that kind of will in my experience. 
Yeah, I think so. You know, I'm always really, I, I'm interested though. Like, I feel like sometimes, um, maybe that's overstating it. I, I, I like people, the people in power don't care about you for sure, right? I feel like regular people kind of care. Maybe they don't really understand the, the, like the effects of climate change long term or something. But, um, you know, were you to lay it out to them, I think that they would see the danger. But it, I, I think that the political will thing is so huge because it just doesn't exist right. for, you know, it didn't it didn't exist for COVID. It doesn't exist for this. I mean, COVID, think about how much more direct a, a threat to people's lives COVID was. Right. And there was no political will to solve any problems whatsoever in the United States. We're on the other side of a, a mass pandemic and we still don't even have things like, you know, sick leave for everybody. Right. So, I mean, how much less could uh, politicians care about something that's going to happen in 100 years? It's bonkers. Um, anyways, Boff goes on to say that uh, he says, those who have overcome this blindness feel the ethical and moral duty to awaken consciences and prepare humanity for the worst. Because of the irresponsibility of the CEOs of large corporations, the inertia of heads of states, and the neglect of society, the various knowledges and movements, with the exception of some, such as Greenpeace, the MST, Greta Thunberg, and others, in raising collective consciousness, we may know we may know a reality worth worse. We may know a reality worse than we imagine. So here it all is again. Um, I, you know, there's a handful of people that are um, are are out there on the front lines. MST, of course, they're the only ones <laughs> I, I really like. That's fine. The the rest of them are great. Um, People need to overcome this blindness. I feel like that is true. I don't, don't know how you do it, though. It's such a complicated thing to make people, people care about the future. But yeah. I guess we're doing a podcast for a reason. Maybe people will care. <laughs> the masses will finally listen to <laughs> us specifically. <laughs> yeah, listen to us listening to Buff. Um, yeah, I mean, he does have uh, this kind of way of cultivating that uh, in some ways as by way of a conclusion. I think, well, I'll read it and then maybe we could talk more about it after. So Boff says uh, two things are urgent with this in mind. The first to create a deep affective bond with nature and the earth, love them and take care of them. Second, we need to live in intimate communion with them. Communion is more than a fundamental theological concept. It is a fact of the deepest reality. Everything is in communion with everything because everyone is inter retro related. That's a great word. Internalizing this communion, we can feel like brothers and sisters of all things in the style of St. Francis of Assisi, and so we will behave. This behavior is required of us now. Uh, he will be able to save uh, life and also save us all affection and communion. So affection and communion are the two things that Boff recommends. And, uh, you know, on a spiritual level, I think that's absolutely true. Um, what I think is really interesting about Boff is <laughs> if I read any other theologian say that, I'd be so mad. I'd be mad because yeah. it, it would be like, here's all the stuff I have on climate changes. And then there's this kind of spiritual disposition suggestion at the end. Um, but Boff is great because he actually thinks that, like, if you have that spiritual disposition, it will compel you to act politically. Right. And like he has a long history of doing that. But you really get, I think, two different kinds of Boffs in his blogging about uh, the ecological crisis. You get. This Boff, who is basically like ends on a, a hopeful note, right? A hopeful note that we could, in fact, cultivate these kinds of relationships to the earth, to ourselves and so on. Um, and we should do that and we'll and we'll be saved. Uh, but you also get these other blog posts from Boff elsewhere on the same blog where he's basically like, there's nothing we can do. Uh, it's all going to go to shit. And like and that and we deserve it. Like that's part of it. 
Um, and, you know, that is also because of a failure of our material movements. And it's this kind of like doom kind of uh, picture that like if there's any hope, it lies in kind of social movements, you know, really investing in those movements. And I think that's what I like about Boff is it's important to have both of those things, right? Like, <laughs> like I said, if it was another theologian who ended here, I'd be mad. But because it's Boff, it's like I can kind of put those two things together. You have to cultivate that spiritual kind of side because literally what else can you do right now? Um, and also you need to like find a way to invest in spirit in social movements because like it really is that bad. Or as he says in the title of this blog post, right? Uh, reality could be worse than we think. Um, so there's something about Boff there that I like, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Hard, hard when you see the government literally editing the IPCC report to be like, <laughs> we're not going to do anything about this. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, were this a different theologian, I would laugh in their face <laughs> and tweet something mean about them. But Leonardo Boff um, means something different, I think, than most people. It, I mean, it's true, right? Like, um, to... It it sounds like almost absurd though to be like, well, okay, how do we how do we defeat the looming threat of climate change? And it's like create a deep, effective relationship with nature. But like, I guess that means something different though in the context of Boff, which is something to think about. Um, and also to like think about how how you have a communion with other people too, right? But it's just like um I guess these are these are the ways that uh, there is a type of like spiritual disposition to organizers that can be helpful mm-hmm. um, in light of you know the most grim situations. But I think that's that's right though. I don't know to um, to feel some kind of like divine connection to people like like Francis of Assisi or something is maybe the only way out because without that connection, how can you organize all people yeah. <laughs> to do something impossible? Right. Um, that's the only way out of this though is to. It is to is to confront the the political situation with you know real people power. Um, yeah, I mean people power is where it's at, right? We were just talking about this ecological debt idea in Led Odyssey, and the question is how do you how do you collect it? <laughs> who's who's the debt collector, right? And uh, I don't know, maybe a bad a bad metaphor, but I guess the point I'm making is like um, without some kind of people power, some kind of real pressure in whatever form that takes, whether it's being in the streets, pressuring elected officials, doing something like the MST does, where they literally occupy land in Brazil and don't let other people have it, <laughs> don't let capitalists have it. Um, all that kind of stuff is part of it, right? Like, um, I think there's there's not a lot of hope outside of people power, and the question is, how do you get it? And, and there is that kind of spiritual side to it. Um, I don't know. For me, I, I think that's all I can really think of to be hopeful anymore, honestly, is like, somewhere in brazil right now somebody is like planning to you know squat on land that a developer wants to destroy in the amazon or something and they're doing that because they care about the poor and the planet and like somewhere in canada also you know like in Wet'suwet'en territory they're doing that right opposing the coastal gasoline pipeline or whatever right like people are out there building people power and there are people building solidarity around those kinds of actions i think that's where it's at but yeah, I don't know. Like I said, the IPCC report is literally being edited so that governments are saying we're not going to do anything about this. So, like, I don't know. We have to figure out how to make them one way or another. Yeah, it's true. And it's like, uh, I guess the choice that you have is, like, you can either start doing it now and figure out ways to take the um, <laughs> take scenario number one of the IPCC report where the damage is reversible. Or you can wait until things become, like, unstabilized right. because life is so, like, hellish. Uh, you can organize then too, I guess, but like, I'd rather do it now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. 
I, you know, that's the other piece of it, too, though, is like, what's the line in uh, Walter Benjamin that like the um, the past has a claim on us, right? Like there's a, a kind of like historical uh, struggle of ancestors that kind of leads to where we are. And I think that's also true in the opposite direction, right? The future also has a claim on us right now. Like people always talk about, like, think of the children or whatever. I don't really like that framing for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I think it's true that like, I don't know, like in the year 2100, when I'm probably not going to be present on this planet anymore, like people will be dealing with whatever that reality is. And like, <laughs> they'll be asking legitimate questions as, about like, why didn't you do anything about this? And at the very least, I want to be like, well, I tried very hard. <laughs> I tried, I tried my very best with like whatever was available to me at that time. And like, I'm sorry, it wasn't good enough, you know, but I, I would not want to sort of li- live a life that was like, I don't know, I just didn't. I didn't figure it out. I didn't go to a meeting because it was awkward. I didn't like call somebody or whatever because I didn't feel like talking on the phone, like all that kind of stuff. You know, like I didn't <laughs> do the boring work of organizing of like emailing 30 people and telling them that the rally is tomorrow, <laughs> like all that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, and I think that that's the question. Like, how do we build the skills we need now for the sake of uh, of people in the future? And maybe that's maybe that's where I'm finding hope at the very end. Right. Like there are things that we can do now. We don't have to sit around and like complain about the IPCC until everybody sort of burns up. We can, we can try something at the very least and, and prepare for the worst. <laughs> That's a great pep talk from coach Dean. We're all sort of <laughs> up here in, in the locker room at the end of the world. And uh, we're, we're getting, we're hearing what we need to hear to, uh, to do something about it. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, we're on social media. We've got a Twitter. You can find us there. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. You can enjoy the music on this podcast <laughs> in our next episode next week, which will also be by the Illogical Spoon and Amori Armstrong. And we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, you keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Besides, what else?